Hey everybody, welcome to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. On Friday, August 12th, the House of Representatives followed the Senate in passing the Inflation Reduction Act, which is, among other things, a climate and health care bill that will soon head to President Joe Biden's desk to be signed into law. And for those who have been advocating for climate legislation, this is a truly historic moment that appeared just a few weeks ago to be dead in the water. There have been enough twists and turns to this story and to the bill itself that we thought it was important to get clear on where we are, how we got here, what's actually in this bill, and what we can expect going forward. Joining me today is Mario Molina, who is the executive director of Protect Our Winters. Mario does a terrific job in this conversation, providing the context and details of this bill and painting a vivid picture of the work that still needs to be done and what you and I now need to do. I also talk with Mario about his own background in the outdoors, about growing up in Guatemala and becoming a guide and outfitter, and how he first got involved in climate advocacy in general, and how that then led to his work at Protect Our Winters. So that is what we have on tap for you today, and let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Mario Molina. Here we go. Well, Mario, how are you today and where are you today? Uh, I'm well, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. I am on Alamusic Lake in Maine, actually. Well, it's funny. A couple of folks who live in Colorado, both of us currently in New England, and I'm going to be heading to Maine actually just after we have this conversation. So we were trying to see if we could do this one in person. Things weren't quite aligning on that front. But yeah, nice to be here in New England, no? Yeah, it's nice to be here in New England. And it's, you know, there's uh, Maine's a big state. So just because we were going to be in the general vicinity doesn't necessarily mean it was going to be easier to connect than if we were just saying, hey, we're both out west. We should try and uh, meet up in person. So despite the fact that we couldn't be in person today, we still wanted to have this conversation because the fact is some truly historic things are happening in this country with respect to climate legislation. And we thought we know somebody who might have a, th a thought or two on this front and be able to help the rest of us just understand what is going on. And I'm sure many of us have been at least hearing something about, wait, it looks like we're going to get something done. Oh, wait, no, we're not. And so I think you could do some extremely helpful clarifying work on our present situation. That said, I also think it might be helpful to have you sort of give us the relevant history of where we are like literally today. And so I will just put that back to you a little bit to ask what is happening and give us a bit of the run up to the announcements that we've been seeing. Yeah, for us at, at Pow, we've been working on this for so long that the, how fast this happened still has us in a bit of uh, in a bit of whiplash in a very celebratory way. Uh, you know, there's I, I I forget the name of the economist, but there's an economist that says, you know, it's amazing to see how long it takes for things to happen, but once they do, how quickly they can happen. Um, and that is a perfect quote for the moment that we're in. So the Senate over the weekend passed what's called the Inflation Reduction Act, calling it the IRA, because in, in typical DC fashion, they can't come up with a more engaging name than that. But here we are, and it is a slimmed down version of a bill 
that was built off of President Biden's original proposal for a comprehensive climate legislation and social reform package that was originally known uh, in January of 2020, it was known as the American Jobs Plan. And it was that $3.1 trillion trillion proposal for coming out of the administration. That was pretty much DOA as a full package. And then it got negotiated and rebuilt into what was called build back better and build back better i think most of us heard about it it was a very it was a slimmed down version of the the original proposal from the white house and it was a proposed bill that bill got uh, delayed in the house uh, at first because it was actually the a lot of the democrats like the progressive climate caucus in the house they we want to lose some of the provisions that had been um, that were included in the original package so then once that came back through, it didn't make it through. It didn't make it through the Senate, so it was back to the negotiating table. Uh, and in the negotiations over the course of the last few months, the two senators that were wild cards on whether this would be uh, able to pass or not were um, Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema. Now it's important to note actually in between there that earlier this year uh, in March. The Senate did pass in bipartisan fashion the infrastructure bill, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which included a lot of the really critical components that were in the original Build Back Better bill, particularly grid upgrades and some investments in EVs. So that was really the the first piece of legislation that uh, that we are building off on now. Now that passed with bipartisan support. The remainder of the climate spending in from that bill was was a question mark, and so originally there were the package was supposed to be about seven hundred and fifty billion. We couldn't agree on what should be included or not. Both uh, Senator Kristen Cinema and uh, Senator Joe Manchin expressed serious concerns around how some of these things were going to get paid for, and concerns around what was included in the bill. So it seemed up to three weeks, uh, up to like three, four weeks ago, it looked like we had reached, we were in progress. There was progress towards an agreement that the Democrats would stand together and pass this in what's called the reconciliation process, which is the way to get past the need for a 60-vote majority, but being able to pass something with a 51-vote majority, which, which, make a long story a little bit shorter, although that ship sailed at this point, it basically means reconciliation is a special process where you bake the bill in through a budgeting process rather than through regular legislation, which is why we don't see anything like EPA authority in this bill. Everything that you see in this bill is related to spending, tax credits, or revenue generation. Uh, And that is because this particular set of uh, this particular uh, package is being moved through a budget bill, not an overall like environmental policy bill, because that would require a 60-vote majority. So we knew that that was going to be the case. We were expecting that. Uh, and the, the negotiations were going back and forth between Manchin. Manchin had signaled that he was willing to move forward with negotiations. And then literally, I think it was two weeks ago, he said, we're done here. We can't get there. I can't support something like this because of inflation, where inflation rates are at. I don't trust that this bill won't actually drive up inflation. And with that, he basically in one stroke had killed any hopes of getting climate legislation passed through the Senate. That in itself was also historic because this would have been the third time that major climate legislation failed to make it through uh, through the U.S. Senate. And there's a lot of people who have been skeptics since the collapse of the cap and trade bill in 2010 that we can get any any kind of legislation passed. I have not been one of those people. I believe that we I believe that we could. But when Manchin pulled out, I thought that this bill particularly was dead, and that would have set us back about 10 years. I think at least 10 years in being able to get legislation passed. And then in, you know, <laughs> kind of like nail biter action thriller, you know, Crocs, mo- Crocs moment, Manchin turned around and said, wait, like, 
I'm still at the table. And I think we have to thank, in a lot of ways, thanks uh, Senator Hickenlooper because he was doing a lot of behind-the-scenes negotiations to keep Manchin and Schumer at the table. And what what emerged was a different version of the bill that had been proposed. And it's a very, but it's still, it's a, it's a really solid bill. Uh, it's gotten some criticism from both sides, which usually tells you you've kind of hit it right. It's gotten criticism from the from the left and from environmentalists for some of the concessions that had to be made around oil leases, and it's gotten it's getting incredible criticism on the on the right for what is in for what is in the bill. But overall, it's a massive step forward, uh, and it puts us back on path to meet that forty percent reduction of greenhouse gas emissions from 2005 levels by 2030, which was the pledge. And it's what we've committed to do under the Paris Agreement. So that was a lot, but... Well, it is a lot, right? What's been going on. And I think that was a nice retelling of the kind of twists and turns of of this journey. What I'd like to have you do, though, is just say a bit more about, you know, so... One, when we were talking a bit earlier about where where do we think we even start this story? Yeah. And I had said, do we do we start with Build Back Better and what happened there? And you had said, I think we got to kind of talk about 2010, which makes sense. So you gave us this kind of overview from 2010. You also said, if this new bill was killed, if this new legislation was killed, that would set us back like 10 years. As somebody who tries to stay up at least a bit on what scientists are talking about, a lot of things I've read says we don't have 10 years to start taking action. I wonder if you might say a bit more about the consequences that you feel, let's say, most confident about, right? Like, when we tell people, and you said this felt like a bit of like a Hollywood thriller, the way that this sort of was killed and then it's back to life. If we waited another decade to start seeing significant steps being taken, what would that landscape look like? What would some of those consequences be? Yeah, I think, Jonathan, what's important for us to realize is where we are at right now in terms of... the Earth's trajectory on in warming. So, uh, in a business as usual scenario, which is what you know we refer to as BAU, what happens if we don't do anything? We continue emissions as we have as we have been. It puts us at three and a half to four degrees of warming between the mid and the end of the century. Now, to give a sense of how sensitive the our environment is to warming, a degree of difference. when the earth was a degree and a half colder um, than it was at the beginning of the 1800s, so two and a half degrees colder than it is now, there was a mile of ice over Wisconsin. That's what we call climate sensitivity. And so we are right now, everything that we're experiencing right now, the extended droughts, the heat wave, I don't know where you are in the world, it's been hard to escape July's heat wave. The fires, the droughts, et cetera, et cetera, that is the consequence of about 1.2 degrees of warming. So a sense of scale here, 1.2 degrees of warming is what's wreaking havoc right now. We do nothing. We get to three and a half or four degrees. And so the longer that we wait, the more committed that we are to that business as usual scenario. So that, that 10 years, that 10 years difference is, is significant. Now, there's a valid argument. People will say, well, the U.S. has actually been reducing its emissions. We are no longer number one emitter in the world. China and India are actually emitting far more than the U.S. is. Why are, why are we, quote unquote, sacrificing our economy for, uh, for emissions reductions when it's not actually going to help the overall trajectory? And the, the response to that is, the U.S. is a leader on the, is is still a global leader, and so 
what this does, what this climate bill does is it not only puts us on path to reduce our own emissions, which are still significant, even if we're not number one, but it also places the U.S. back in a position of credible leadership in the international community. So that's number one, which we haven't had for the last six years. And so once the U.S. takes a position of leadership, there are other things, there are other levers that the U.S. can, that we can apply in working with allies in Europe working with other countries that are taking significant action to apply to China and India, such as point of entry taxes or tariffs, which has which have been discussed. There's a lot more leverage uh, and credit and credibility. Number two is I am still a strong believer in American innovation, and what we've seen is, you know. The electric electric vehicles, solar technologies, uh, storage technologies, a lot of these technologies had their birthplace in the U.S. So China may have now taken over manufacturing of components or solar components, but the technology was bred here. So I think that such a massive investment is going to breed the type of innovation and technological advances that we can then export to the rest of the world. And that is good not only for the climate, it is also good for the economy, it's good for our position in the world, and it also decreases our reliance on foreign energy sources. So I think all of these benefits would have been lost if we if we waited another 10 years. Like this is the right direction for us to move in right now. And so it may not be it may not be everything that we wanted, but like I've told my team, not everything that we would have wanted to see is in the bill, but everything that is in the bill we wanted to see. Except maybe for the oil leases obviously. Can you speak to the oil leases and on the one hand, to get something like this passed, as you said, often in a negotiation, many people who actually have to do a lot of negotiations will say, that's a common thing you hear. A good negotiation is where neither side is completely happy, right? This is how things get done. We do have a representative democracy here. Talk a little bit about and let's just say your personal opinion, I won't make you speak for like, this is the official statement of protect our winters or anything like that. But to what degree do you see this as being like a somewhat reasonable step in that for those people who got to vote on this and said, we do need to see some incremental changes, right? Some of us maybe not into incremental changes. We want to do everything right now, move as quickly as possible. Others are like, well, okay, I see where you want to go. Maybe we even agree on that, but let's go a little slower. How would you frame the oil and gas leases given that kind of context I just set up? You asked me for my personal opinion. I when navigating the positions that POW is going to take on controversial issues or on you know, gray on gray areas, it's not easy and, and we don't always get it right. Um, but what I try to do is I try to seek the principle. What is the, what is the principle from which we can find a position? To me, the validity of that approach is that that principle should hold true across multiple similar circumstances rather than in any than be than the need to change based on the scenario, et cetera. And um, you know, a principle that I've really brought forth for us over the course of the last year and a half, um, and it's you know, I don't want to butcher it, so I'm gonna paraphrase Frederick Douglass. You know, Frederick Douglass when he was supporting Abraham Lincoln's re-election I think it's 1864. He fell under a lot of criticism because Lincoln was considered a moderate, and why was he supporting a moderate? And at one point, he in his in his the paper he was publishing at the time, he responded something to the effect of, "We must be radical in our ideologies and pragmatic in our politics." And I think that principle applied applied here. In it, we needed to be. We need to be radical in our ideology of wh where we want to go. We know the International Energy Agency has said no new fossil fuel development is needed uh, in order to get to the goals. So we know that we stand on solid science and 
and solid studies when we say, hey, we don't want any more oil leases. We don't want any new fossil fuel development. That is the scientifically valid path to follow. That's the principle, like that's our like, the ideology. The, the politics, however, means we have to figure out what, what can get passed, what will actually make it through and be turned into law, because otherwise we end up with nothing. And protect our winters. We've always been, we've always put forward the concept of progress over perfection. Like if we have to pick between, you know, shooting for the perfect and getting nothing, or making progress, we'll always pick progress. And that's that's how that's the principle that I apply when I think about this bill and support for this bill, uh, despite the oil leases. So, I've seen some analyses that say, hey, you know, the benefit to harm ratio in terms of net emissions. Uh, from the benefits of the bill against the emissions from new oil leases are about 10 to 1 in terms of the emissions that will be reduced versus the emissions that may be generated. Uh, our, our number one challenge right now is the use of coal and natural gas for electricity generation. Parallel to that is you know, diesel and gas for transportation. In the U.S., actually, you know, we get more of our emissions coming out of transportation than electricity generation. But if we solve the former, we have a path to solving the latter. If we figure out electricity generation and how to get, we need more electricity in the grid because our energy demands are going up. So we have to get more electricity into the grid and the grid can't handle more electricity right now. I mean, not at the scale that we're going to need it. So we have to first upgrade the grid. Uh, like that's gotta be, that's gotta be top priority. And I think there's bipartisan agreement on that. And there's been a significant, there's a significant investment in the infrastructure bill towards upgrading the grid. Then we have to get more renewable energy into that grid. We need to get more energy, and that energy needs to be renewable energy. And that's where I think this gets us to. This will actually help us get some of those renewable energy, like those clean electrons, in an upgraded grid. And then you know, in parallel, we need to start building an infrastructure for electric vehicles and starting and start to transition the fleet. Because that's how we'll actually get to much of the transportation problem. And then you have the oil, the oil leases, right? Like, there's a reason why a lot, like BP and Exxon, and I think Shell, or actually BP and Shell, I don't think Exxon's made a statement, have actually come out in support of this bill, because they're saying, hey, like, doesn't really touch us. We get new leases, like, great. Let's let's move forward with it. Now, I think it's important to remember right now, oil prices that are an all-time high. But it wasn't that long ago where you know the leases that went up uh, uh, in Alaska you know, that were were a complete failure. You know, the Trump administration had projected they they would generate about 120 billion in revenue. They sold for like eight billion. Most of them went unsold because the financing wasn't there. The you know the the public the public support or the public outrage against it was just much. And a lot of people are saying, hey, and there's some analysis starting to come out saying, look, the IRA might have opened up certain areas for further leasing, but the general trend and the general direction is moving away from fossil fuels. Financial institutions upon which fossil fuel development rely on to fund a lot of these projects may be far more risk averse to actually developing some of these leases than than we expect right now, particularly if we start seeing alternative energy sources filling in the gap for oil. So in the short term it might seem it might seem like that's that's not gonna happen. I think that there's many possible disruptions between now and the extraction distribution and consumption of the fuels from those oil leases that are possible. And so we need to keep an eye on it. We need to continue to figure out, okay, how do we how do we avoid any new fossil fuel projects? But right now, it's not a one-for-one one in terms of we know that these leases are going to get developed versus all of the benefits that we're going to get from the clean energy investments. Very well said. And it's quite interesting as you're talking, thinking about, obviously, People in the oil and gas game, they would probably like to continue to be in the oil and gas game. When you start talking about investors, and we're talking at a huge scale and level of investment, that money's all forward-looking. It's all forward-looking. And none of those people are 
confused, I think, about where the world is headed, needs to head, the financial opportunities. They're not backward-looking people. And that money and that those investment dollars, I would be willing to wager, are not going to be backward-looking either. You look at growth opportunities, not what the system was 100 years ago. And so very interesting, and I think a nice point of clarification there for us that just because there are opportunities here with the leases does not mean we we should not just assume that we have any sense of what new production is going to look like. Yeah. There's a quote that's been attributed to the former energy minister of Iran. I don't know if that's actually who said it, but I love it. And it's, uh, and I use it often. The, it's, the, the stone age didn't end because we ran out of rocks. It, it ended because we had better, new, better technologies. The fossil fuel age is not going to end because we run out of opportunities for fossil fuel development. Uh, there's plenty of fossil fuels left in the ground to bake the planet many times over, but it's but it's ending. I'm not even going to say it's going to end, it's ending because we have better, cheaper technologies that are available at scale. I want to back up for a second and talk a bit more about your own background. So let's let's kick it real far back to like, where did you grow up? Yeah, well, I grew up in Guatemala. So I was born and raised in Guatemala. I grew up from the time I was probably 12 years old, spending most of my time outdoors. Uh, I, I started climbing, you know, volcanoes, which uh, in Guatemala, they go, you know, you get 13,000, you know, a couple of 14,000 uh, 14, volcanoes. And I just fell in love with the vertical process, to be honest. I then I went to college in Arkansas and studied ecology there. And I learned to climb. So I learned to rock climb and paddle uh, and mountain bike in Arkansas. Then I moved back to Guatemala for about three years and ran the the first like adventure sports shop out of Antigua, Guatemala, which we did uh, rafting trips, we did uh, mountain biking trips, we did uh, some you know, some climbing, mostly mountain biking. And actually, in between there, I did Colorado Outward Bound School for their like their three month like their three month semester, and that's where I got some you know, my, my technical background. But after you know, after after guiding for three years, I loved it. It was great. But I realized this could turn into National Groundhog Day pretty freaking quickly, right? Like it was like you know living on vacation in a lot of ways, like week after week after week. And I thought ah, it's you know, probably time to start figuring out what the long term plan is. So um, I went back to school. I went to school in North Carolina, Appalachian State University. Uh, and got my master's degree in geosystems analysis there. And at the time, it was we knew about climate change. It was a it, stu- it was an area of study. You know, I had several grad students who were um, peers who were you know studying effects on plants. But we thought, oh, that's something that's a little bit further down the line. Like that's going to be like it's not. Like, we've got a little bit of time, and the science was you know, we we're still developing the science. Um, then I moved to Ecuador and I was running uh, a program, a volunteer, uh, a college volunteer program where students would do two weeks of adventure travel, two weeks of uh, conservation work. And I started doing some high altitude mountaineering, nothing too serious, but Cotopaxi, Chimborazo, Ilinizas. Um, and over the five years that I was in Ecuador, it really struck me how quickly glaciers were receding. Um, like that was to me like the a shit moment right where we would it would take longer and longer to get to the to get to the to the terminus of the moraine it would be further and further and you know just knowing the dependencies that downstream dependencies on those glaciers those communities uh, it really got me thinking about climate change and so then came back um and realized there's major policy that's maybe moving forward in the u.s Right. And uh, people were asking me, well, what do you think, you know, projects that I was working with, what do you think we should be doing? I thought, well, the U.S. is about to pass, uh, you know, a cap, a cap and trade bill, particularly you know, communities that were working on forest management, you know, 
we thought, hey, this is going to be a real opportunity for uh, for carbon pricing. So carbon offsets, like the carbon, like the carbon markets, uh, and boom, the whole thing collapsed. The negotiations collapsed. The deal fell through, and carbon prices just crashed. Carbon prices just crashed. Uh, and I thought, what what's going on here? And I didn't know know a lot about U.S. policy or U.S. politics, so. At the time, for personal reasons, my you know, uh, my then fiance and I were thinking about moving back to the U.S. So we ended up we ended up back in the U.S. and I wanted to get involved in climate policy. So I joined an organization called the Alliance for Climate Education as their deputy director. Our focus was really getting youth to vote and youth to vote on climate through climate education, as the name implies. Then I was recruited by the Climate Reality Project, which is a former Vice President Al Gore's organization, to work on their trainings for international trainings. Uh, then Paris, the Paris Agreement came around. My role transitioned because of my international background. My role transitioned to working on uh, the organization's efforts uh, internationally. So I had my portfolio included you know, Australia, Mexico, uh, Eastern Europe. India, South Africa, and Brazil. And over those three years, I just had the opportunity to interact with some of the top minds on, on this issue and hear a lot of different perspectives from you know, ministers of economy in India to you know, uh, the Brazilian Congress and some of the champions there for policies when Brazil was actually going to lead Latin America in, in wind generation. So it was just a exponential learning curve and just the, the best PhD program I could have joined in terms of learning. But, you know, I had to wear a suit to work. Uh, it was brutal. And there's, you know, and you know, culturally there were things that, you know, just not necessarily the, the best the best fit for me. Uh, I have a lot of respect for, uh, for the former vice president. I think you know, he's really dedicated his life to this issue. I don't necessarily agree with all of his perspectives or, or, or politics, and that's totally okay. But when the opportunity came up uh, to join POW in 2017, and you know, Jerry, you know, talking to Jeremy, and he and I were just so tightly aligned on this vision for POW as a place that people from the entire outdoor community can come and learn about, advocate for, and vote on climate, regardless of anything else, regardless of political affiliation, regardless of you know, uh you know geography and even you know at the time it was only snow sports but even regardless of sports we were like this is not this is not a skiers thing this is not a snowboarders thing this is like the outdoor like an outdoor community thing and so for us it became really about how how do we build what we call the outdoor state right which is there are more over 50 million Americans who recreate outdoors, whether that's climbing, mountain biking, skiing, snowboarding, uh, trail running, which are the categories that we work in, and for whom those sports are a significant part of their lifestyle or their livelihoods depend on it because of the industry. If we all came together and made climate a priority, we would be larger than all of the swing states combined. Uh, as a as a constituency and a voting block, so that's the mission that we're on. Really, it's you know, regardless of your political affiliation, regardless of your geography, regardless of your sport, regardless of anything else. If you love the outdoors, if you love uh, the places that we ski, trail run in, if we love the landscapes, if we love the land, our common ground is protecting the land, and the way that we protect the land is by addressing climate change. And the first thing that we need to do to protect climate change is get policy passed. So you said it was really about 2010, correct me if I'm wrong, when you really started paying closer attention to policy and you know what was being done, how these conversations were going, etc. And so what has sort of changed or what has stayed the same over the last 12 years in your view? So what has changed, what has stayed the same? I'll tell you what stayed the same. The influence of money in politics. And 
that has unfortunately stayed the same. And fossil fuel companies have a lot of money that they've been pouring into this. And it's amazing. I'm, I'm reading this book called The Price uh, by Daniel Jurgen, and it is a history of oil. Basically, from the first time that you know, the, the, it was discovered in the Northeast and in, Pen in Pennsylvania, it's a little seepage, and this guy, uh, this professor thought, hey, this can be used for actually creating kerosene and, and, and illuminating and using it as an alternative for two candles uh, to, you know, to present day. And what we see is it was early, early on in the history of vertically integrated oil companies, Standard Oil, which many of us have heard. So in the late 1800s and early 1900s, they were putting money into this. They, they, the, the relationship between large oil companies in fossil fuels and, uh, and politics in putting money into politics goes back 150 years. And that hasn't, and that hasn't changed and it's only scaled up. And so that's, that's the challenge, right? Because for at one point, Chevron's marketing budget was $350 million, right? Like that is about as much as gets poured into environmental nonprofits in the U.S. You know, per, per year like for one single company. But what has changed is the awareness and attitudes of people. And so you know, those, those dollars are going in, very often are going in to buy public opinion. And they're going in to try and influence politicians. And what's happening is that public opinion is shifting in the tide of public opinion is shifting pretty dramatically and pretty drastically. Like it wasn't that long ago where a conversation about you know, clean energy wouldn't even make a presidential debate and it wasn't even at the forefront, much less uh, be the core, be a core messaging point and be a core debate point. And that is not credit to the Democrats or the Republicans, or that's not credit to Biden or anybody. That is credit to the people. That is credit to you know the millions of people who've been advocating for this for you know, two, three, for two, three decades, and the awareness, and particularly, I think the you know the generation that's coming up behind us that realize, hey, we're getting stuck with this, um, and that's and that's absolutely not fair so i feel like it is awareness and the willingness to act on it and the willingness to make it a political priority that is changing that's one thing the other piece is that those you know people who have been deniers or who you know there was there's been like this progression right and messaging it's like oh climate change isn't happening and then that became a lot harder statement to sustain. Then climate change is maybe it's happening, but it's not human caused, right? And that lasted, you know, that lasted five or six years, but it became a lot harder, continually and a lot harder to sustain. Then it was like, yeah, it's happening. It's probably human caused, but there's nothing that we can do about it. Like that became, now that's become harder to sustain. And so now it's like, Oh, it's happening, but it's not, you know, the U.S.'s fault or it's not our fault or it's too expensive to deal with it. Right. So you've seen like this progression on messaging and positioning by those that would oppose a clean energy transition that gets continually eroded in its validity and in the willingness of the people to accept it as a valid as a valid narrative. So those people are painting themselves into a corner and they're realizing like we're running out of bullshit. <laughs> like, we are we are totally running out of valid bullshit to do this, and so now, I think the the tactic is more like let's stall, let's just stall, let's stall. Action. More, we need more studies, we need more time to think, we need more time to develop new technologies, we need more more time because more time means more profit for business as usual, and yet unfortunately, time is the enemy for us. Like we have the technology, we have the policies that we know we need to implement, we have the economics, it, like all of the pieces that we need to solve this are are there are ready ready to go and so it's a matter of we we need to do it fast um and so stalling is you know stalling is the new denial like anytime that you hear anybody saying we just need to wait or we need to give this more time or we need time for the technology to evolve or we need to wait until some like china acts etc etc anytime that you hear somebody stalling it's the equivalent of hearing somebody's 20 10 years ago five years ago say it's not happening we shouldn't do anything about it so that's what i feel has changed and we're getting pissed i think people are getting people on both sides are getting are getting pissed
first of all, I need to read the price. That sounds really interesting. But as you're talking, sort of imagining, you know, let's say there were podcasts, you know, back in the mid 1800s, and you and I are candle makers. And we're hearing about this new fossil fuel technology thing. And it's like, hey, Mario, you and I, this might not be good for our candle making businesses that we run, right? And so, like, in a way, I think it's fair to say, like, obviously, the development of oil and gas as an energy source has led to all kinds of significant advancements in modern culture. No question. There have been downsides to that, for sure. I don't know that too many of us could seriously say, like, it was better when we were just, you know, all lighting candles and having sort of local fires being made in our homes. So if we really zoom out, the fossil fuel sort of history of time, fossil fuel energy, is pretty short-lived. We're talking about a 150-year history. Let's move to the next chapter. Like, right? And so now, yes, we still would like to operate and give people the advantages of lighting and electricity, these kinds of things. Let's make that more available to more parts of the world. Let's just reduce the pollution. Let's reduce emissions. And, and so I, I think it is a little weird to dig too deep into, I mean, certainly some people are financially motivated to cling to the energy sources of today. But for the rest of us, I mean, this is just an evolution. This is the way like humankind works, I think, right? We evolve, we create new things, we get advancements, we get you know, and, and side effects from those things. And then we continue to evolve into the next thing. And I don't know, does this resonate with you? Like we're part of the next innovation, a cleaner source of energy and going back to investments in financial institutions and seeing where some of the biggest firms are placing their money. It's on cleaner tech. Definitely. And it's, and it's exciting. Like, it's, it's cool. You know, like think of what, think what you will of, uh, of Elon Musk, but he made EVs cool, right? Like who, like who doesn't really actually love the look of a Tesla, right? And the, and how a Tesla drives if you've been, if you've been in one or not. And, you know, not all of us can afford, you know, not all of us can afford Teslas, but the, the principle here, it's, it's better technology. It, it, it just is better. So, you know, we were talking about electric vehicles the other day, and there's a couple of things. Like, one, we had an internal conversation at Power a while ago, and it's a very valid criticism here, and it's you know the environmental justice implications of the transition to electric vehicles, right? Because there is going to be you know need for copper, nickel, and a lot of you know a lot of minerals that rely on extracted that rely on extractive industries, and there's in you know. There's consequences, particularly for marginalized communities, the way those minerals need to be extracted. We're seeing a lot of concerning moves in China and Africa into communities for this. So there's there is a very valid set of concerns and a very valid set of problems there. But and here's the big but: it's not like our choice is between electric vehicles and something that's so much better, cleaner, and completely environmentally just. Right, the choice right now is between electric vehicles and internal combustion engines, and internal combustion engines rely on oil. And if we think about the tar sands and the effects that the tar sands have on native peoples in you know in Canada and what's been done to those communities, if we think about the Greenwich people up in Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and the battle there to keep their lands intact. If we think about the consequences that we've seen in cancer rates in the Amazon and communities like Serayaku in, in Ecuador and Colombia um, because of because of oil extraction, if we think on and if we think about the BP oil spill, like those are our choices right now, right? Here's a big differentiator for me, in my opinion, and it's we've gotten the most we're going to get out of internal combustion engine technology. Like there are, you know, there are limits set by the laws of thermodynamics on how efficient an internal combustion engine can be. And we're there. We're not going to ever get a hundred mile per gallon internal combustion engine. So if we continue on that path, we're going to continue to 
create incredible environmental damage to communities that have been marginalized and continue to put pressure on those communities while continuing to have not the best technology and, and, and contribute to global warming. On the other hand, we have this nascent, very, very young technology that we don't really know how far we can take and what the developments are like, in terms of its capacity. Like, how much can we actually get out of a ba- out of a battery? Like, two hundred miles, four hundred miles, you know, is it six hundred miles? I don't think we've we've really figured out like what is the maximum efficiency that we can get out of these batteries. So there's so much room for improvement in the technology itself from this point on. Uh, let's give it a chance. And then also, I think it's a valid it's a valid question. Let's figure out like. How do we start creating a system that will address some of those environmental justice concerns in a way that extraction from fossil fuels wasn't addressed in the beginning and put that in place right now, as well as looking at circular economy. So battery recycling is possible. There are companies that do it. So there's a lot of improvements that can be made to technology as is. So when we look at the technology for electric vehicles right now, we don't have to say we're wetting ourselves to that model as it exists right now for the next 30 to 40 years and look at how bad it's going to be. We can say, hey, this is the starting point for that technology and for that scale. Think about how much better it can be. We can't think about how much better it's going to be with internal combustion engines. Like, I mean, yeah, we'll get some improvements, I'm sure, but there's there's just not a whole lot of room for growth left there. So to me, that's that's really valid to think about. And it goes back to your point in terms of this is how we advance. This is how we grow. I think we need to be thinking, like, what is our growth mindset? What's our advancement mindset? And what are what technologies do we need to shed? What systems do we need to shed? Because we have reached the upper limits of what advancement is possible versus what technologies do we need to adopt and what systems do we need to adopt because we're just starting to see what's possible. So on the technology side, but also on how it's organized, right? Like microgrids, like what's what's possible with microgrids is amazing, right? And then integration of, integration of microgrids. So it's not just individual technologies, but how these technologies actually come together. And that's where I get really excited, as you can probably tell. Like, I, it's like there is there is so much possibility, and with that possibility comes the opportunity for economic growth. That is when we have seen like major breakthroughs in and spurts of like economic growth and leadership. And so, you know, there's a lot of people that say, "Oh, America is in decline," or like America is losing its economic like its economic position in the world, and that's just a natural cycle, and China's going to be, become it. That is a choice we will make. That is not the way that it has to go. And if we see like whether we're looking at you know the industrial revolution, we we look at oil like what oil did for you know for the american economy in the early you know in the early 20th century there's no denying it actually set america on a on the path for to become the global superpower then we have the internet like that set america on the path to become a global superpower it's about what are we willing to invest in and what are how are we willing to innovate and we've got a huge opportunity in front of us uh, and this bill i think actually capitalizes on that opportunity to set America back on a path to be an economic superpower and to do it in a way that is less extractive, more fair, and applies the lessons that we've learned out of the mistakes that we've made. So bringing it back to, you know, like today, which is August 11th, when we're talking, what should we be expecting now with where things are in Congress? Are there still potential surprises here, big swings from a legislation point of view? Let's just start there. If I were to draw an analogy, it's like we're at the top of the climb getting ready to transition and drop in, right? And and so, you know, there is always something that can happen that's unexpected, like, you know, a cornice can give or, you know, you can catch an edge, whatever it might be. But... Those are not things that you expect or foresee. Like at this point, it would have to be something pretty, pretty radical to derail this. Like the, you know, the last major hurdle was the votorama that took place last weekend, where it's like all kinds of you know, amendments are introduced, and you know, I have to say, I'm really. 
uh, in admiration of this time how the how the Democrats held together uh, and didn't waver on any of the amendments in order to get this in order to get this passed because that that was hard they were put in pretty uncomfortable and pretty uncomfortable positions but you get this passed so at this point it goes back to the house uh, tomorrow in the house is it's expected to pass the house because there's a majority there as well I, you know, it would be it would be suicidal, I think, at this point for it not to pass the House, if it didn't pass the House, because it would require um, the caucus to not hold together there. So, And then it'll go off to the president's desk for signing. And so we're expecting that that could happen Saturday or it could happen Monday or Tuesday. But I think at this point, we're expecting that by midweek next week, bar something you know, nobody's expecting happens, uh, it'll get signed. it'll get signed into law. Now, that's great, and that's absolutely worth celebrating, and it's fantastic. I, I always like to say the, 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 the planet's geochemistry doesn't give two shits about anything that we put on pen and paper. Uh, it will continue to do what it does. And so whether it's a Paris Agreement, whether it's climate legislation, whether it's you know, declarations, whether it's net zero pledges, the geochemistry of the climate doesn't care. What the geochemistry of the climate cares about is how much CO2 is going into the atmosphere year after year after year. So I, I say that because what's next and what's going to the work ahead is going to be implementation. Uh, and it's going to be, okay, how do we make sure that that money is actually getting spent on projects? How do we make sure that that investment actually translates to carbon-free electrons flowing into an upgraded grid. And that's and that's no, no easy task. And so what we foresee is that a lot of this implementation will now depend on the states and getting support at the state level for projects. It, a lot of this will actually require a lot of the grid improvements that we've been talking about. There's two projects that I'm really excited about. Uh, one is being led by Pacific Core out of the Pacific, uh, out of the Northwest, which is called the uh, the Energy Gateway, I think they call it, and it is a transmission line. If I uh, don't quote me on this, but I think it's for three gigawatt, three or five gigawatts, a shit ton of gigawatts that will allow for more electrons to be moved uh, across across the West, but it needs to go through Utah, New Mexico, Arizona. But that's an, it's a massive project. It's about $8 billion. And so once projects like, and there's another one in the Midwest, I think from Nebraska to Missouri, that is of similar size. So once you get like these really like electron superhighways built that can take on how we fill those superhighways, like what the electrons are going to be that make up the traffic in there with this bill, I think can be with clean energy electrons. And it, the, the thing that I think people, it, it's important also for us to know, it's economically, most of this money, if it is deployed, it will actually be deployed in what are called red states because they're the ones that actually have most of the wind and solar capacity that can come online right off the bat. So this is a win-win for both sides, no matter how you feel about it ideologically. Like there's money that's going to be pouring in. And a lot of this, it's not, it's not just government handout. This is, you know, tax credits are not government handout. This means that there has to be an initial investment from the private sector in order to get those tax credits. And so for us, I think what we... As a community of advocates, what happens next is to be supportive of projects going up at state level and or in our communities. A lot, the, one of the major problems right now to renewable energy project development is you know, nimbyism, not in my backyard. Whether it's you know, communities off the you know, off the Jersey Shore saying, "Oh, it's going to my five million dollar house is going to have a terrible view now because there's windmills in front of it," or whether it's other, you know, whether it's people that don't want solar panels in public lands because of habitat. And these are valid concerns, but we need to keep the, you know, the, the emphasis on the right syllable. Uh, we need to make sure that we are, that we're transitioning the grid. And I loved driving through Kansas on my way here. You know, you, it's miles and miles and miles of windmills. And these windmills have leased farmers' lands to put it on there. And between two windmills, there was a there was a shipping container, a large shipping container, painted red, white, and blue, like and with large words there, like Trump twenty twenty four vote, and I was like, freaking fantastic! Like 
everybody should get out to vote. Like our democracy is meant to withstand a lot of things, but it's not meant to withstand apathy. And if you want to like, however you want to vote, vote. But if the economics are there to where regardless of how you vote, you realize that the energy transition are in our best interest, not only environmentally, but also economically, then we will get this, then we will get this done. And that needs to happen again. County commissioners need to be approving renewable energy projects, and that depends on communities showing up and making sure that county commissioners know that this is a priority for them. Uh, state PUCs need to be approving transmission projects and renewable energy projects. Uh, then you know, states need to be prioritizing electric vehicle infrastructure and spending. Colorado's you know, poised to do a great job with this. So there's a lot of good work ahead. And what's exciting is for the first time in a long time, it doesn't feel like we are just playing defense and trying to hold the line. It feels like, hey, we're we're at the precipice of making real tangible progress. And we just need to keep that progress going, which is why for us it's so important that the outdoor state community show up to vote at these midterm elections because we need to make sure that we're protecting the gains that we've made and not allow for them to get derailed through you know, the shenanigans that tend to, that, that can happen. So, You've mentioned the importance of getting people out to vote. POW has already sort of started a voting campaign on this front. You mind saying a little bit about that and what people can do, might do, where they should go if they're trying to learn more about these things? Yeah, so stokethevote.com or stokethevote.org is our campaign. And basically what we're doing is we're pushing out a bunch of content over the next couple of months, uh, everything from informational content to funny videos to, um, to, to science content to imagery, etc. on reasons why we should vote. And obviously our, our interest is let's, regardless of whether it's Republican or Democrat, let's vote on people who support a clean energy transition. And fortunately, there, there are, uh, there's a congressional um, or the, the Conservative Climate Caucus, which is a group of Republicans that's taking the issue seriously and trying to move it forward. So it's not a, it's not a you know, Democrat versus conservative issue, but in states and in places where we need to defend the gains that we've made and people who have, uh, who have supported you know, this package and other energy legislation, it's important that they get our support as well. So we're educating people on how to vote. So how do you make sure that you're registered? If you need to do early voting, how do you ensure that you can get your, uh, your voting ballot? Where, where to vote, like, et cetera, et cetera. And then we're going to have our sister organization, POW AF, which is our C4, is going to have a voter guidebook in terms of showing for our priority states, which are mostly across the West, Montana, Arizona, Utah, Colorado, um, and Nevada. It's where what's the voting record of the people or what are the positions on clean energy uh, of the people that are up, that are up for, for re-election. So, and then, you know, obviously it's important for us to vote, but more importantly, it's if you've already registered and you're all good, then can you get 10 of your friends to do that? Can you share the content? Can you make sure that we're really building a, a groundswell of civically engaged outdoor community members? For me, one of the things that has made me the proudest of the work that Pau has done over the course of the last three, four years, it's really bringing this concept of civic engagement to the forefront of the outdoor community's culture. Like we should be, you know, the, the you know the Teddy Roosevelts of the twenty uh, of the twenty first century. Like we have so much to gain or lose by how this goes that it should be a, a core part of our culture, a core part of our identities to say, yeah, I, you know, I strap in, I, you know, I, I rope up and I vote. Well said, Mario, thank you. This has been great. It is an important time and a historic time. And I really appreciate you coming in to just help us better understand kind of the landscape and a number of the moving parts and pieces to all of this. And I got to say, what I love too, is I think you have correctly painted a picture of why there is reason to be so excited and optimistic about the future. That isn't always uh, the type of attitude, let's say, or mood that one is left with after a conversation about climate. So I think there is a lot for us to 
be looking forward to and to be working on, right? To continue to do the work, to make happen the things that you've kind of laid out for us today. So thank you very much. Yeah, Jonathan, thank you so much for having me and for uh, for the hustle. I know it was last minute that we decided to do this. Uh, I'm so glad that you were uh, willing and able to fit it in. I do think it's a really important moment for the community to understand what's happening and also for so many of us that have been involved to celebrate what's happening. So really appreciate it and appreciate it making it, you making it happen. For sure. Well, we'll do it again. And I look forward to meeting up with you back in Colorado. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> All right, man. You take care, Mario. Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Mario for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And from all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will be talking with you again tomorrow on our running podcast, Off the Couch. On Wednesday, over on our new crafted podcast, Thursday, Bikes and Big Ideas. And Friday, Gear 30. So you can find all those other podcasts wherever you download your podcasts or over on the Blister website. So take care and talk to you soon.